Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Black Teachers Matter here on WBCA LP 102.9 FM, Boston. We're Boston's community radio station. I'm your host and producer, Sharon Eaton Hinton, here with another one of my wonderful, wonderful guests. I usually have him on my other show on another level. But today, we have the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to bring him here to another audience that needs to know Mr. Joel McCall. He's an historian, an educator, a program developer, an entrepreneur. He is amazing. And I want to say, um, welcome, Joel McCall. How are you? I'm fine, sister. I'm doing great. Thanks. And, I and happy thanks. new year. Very happy new year. <laughs> I know. It's so glad that we made it, right? Yeah. Because sometimes, brother, it was it was dicey. 2023 was no joke. Yeah, I was waiting to get out of 2023. <laughs> For real. Yeah. For real. I um, When I think of, uh, and I so I have to show people, that's your beautiful face. And you said your spirit animal, which we can't see all of it, the elephant, but we definitely have the ears and the trunks <laughs> and the tusk and everything. We'll see that. Um, you have started Hidden History of Black Boston. And um, I've known you now for several years. And so your mission, Discover the Formation and Rich Heritage of Black Boston's Community. And now you have a local passenger charter van, but you were doing walking mm. tours before. Mm-hmm. And you said you, we break it way down from the early days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony to Malcolm, Martin, Melnia. Our guides provide one-of-a-kind insight into the landmarks, events, and vivid stories that shaped and keeps Afro-Boston. So you and I have talked about Nubian Square. Now that we have a Nubian Square, there's barely any Nubians in there. And so I don't think um, a lot of people really realize the richness of Black Boston. So this is a different um, a different audience. It's WBCA, and so it's radio, and it's also podcasts available on Spotify and Podbeam. And it's also people can get uh, rebroadcasts and... Um, on uh, video on demand on bnnmedia.org and so there's de- many different ways but we're actually live right now 102.9 fm and uh, welcome tell me you've got charter van tours and walking heritage tours you started the walking heritage tours first but what got you started uh well it's a it's a long story i moved to boston in 93 and for a decade <clears throat> I was incommunicado. I was in the corporate cubicle at one State Street Corporation for a decade, paying off my school bills and whatnot. So I was not really a part of the the Boston community until 2003 when I quit and I decided to start my own um, independent uh, black education company. And I started getting contracts to teach um, in technology labs here and there. Um, in 2003. So actually, um, last summer, I celebrated my 20th year of the Reidrin Business Group. No way. Yes. So that 20 was 20 years. You 20... only look like you're 26. <laughs> Go on, sister. But um, no, it was uh, a sm- small celebrated, but um, something I was actually pretty proud of that uh, we've been doing it this way, principled way. Um, you know, the, the, the ironic thing is, is just this last year, even through COVID and, and the couple of years before, most of my work, whether it was a genealogy class, it was a technology class in Grove Hall, um, 
you know, these different tours that I've been doing for the last 15, 16 years. Um, you know, we just got the, the charter van this summer, right before the NAACP convention. And we got a little bit of business from that, but I haven't really promoted myself outside of the community. And th <laughs> this October, this summer, um, I had, uh, a lot of different people get in touch with me to um, hook up different tours, and so we're really broadening our our reach. But um, I'm glad to say that we, you know these last 20 years we've really been doing things to the community and the show enough community people's rate. And um, you know the the van is is just an extension of what what I'm doing. Um, I'm trying to reach out to a whole bunch of different you know folks, whether it's your your church youth group uh, seniors. I took uh, a sorority of seniors, a bunch of aunties, uh, on a two-and-a-half-hour um, hidden history tour through 400 years of our incredible black history here in Boston. Um, we went all the way down to Faneuil Hall, Long Wharf, um, Copsville Cemetery, where Prince Hall is buried in the North End. We went to the West End, talked a little bit about Coretta Scott King uh, living up there, as well as all the uh, wonderful uh, race men and women from the 1830s, uh, Mariah Stewart and David Walker um, in Beacon Hill. Then we came back up through the South End and ended up at Malcolm's house on Dale Street. And then I took them uh, back to their to the parking lot. And um, so that was really our last tour of the of this season. But um, yeah, again, we're excited. I'm really building up the springtime to launch a series of tours we can talk about but now you know the fact that um you have a van now you're not yeah. restricted so much by well you're not restricted so much by weather and also yeah. i'm thinking that um people who are seniors who can't necessarily walk that much now that's pretty pretty good advantage for them i, I watched yeah. your posting i saw your posting <laughs> and um there's some pretty uh interesting people that are there i know that they're you and I talked about, you know, in our, our other shows, how um, the African proverb, when you lose an elder, you lose a library. Yeah. So while you were on the tours with the elders, did you hear some of their Black Boston stories Are you kidding too? me? They, I said to some of these ladies, I said, you need to be sitting here in the passenger seat um, running this tour when I do the Uptown tour. Because I, I have a generic one, which is kind of where we cover everything. And if I'm coming from you know, Roxbury or Dorchester, it's another 15, 20 minutes because we're, we're going on Warren. We're going, I stop it um, right across from the, the courthouse in, on Warren and say, you know, there's three W's. There's Winthrop, Wheatley, and Warren. And they were all slave owners and it involved African lives. Mm. And we're across the street from the Boston Day and Evening Academy is, is housed in the, the Wheatley building. Then there's Winthrop, um, street and it's right off of Warren so that we stop right there in front of the judge statue and we talk a little bit about um, well actually we start at Africa is the beginning which is on the side of the the um, the Y uh, up the street at, at Martin Luther King the Roxbury Y yeah the so the um, Rickson uh, the brother who, who made this incredible mural that says Africa is the beginning that was that, the one with the pyramid in the yes, side yes yes with the kind of Afrofuturistic spaceship kind of feel mm -hmm. um, with the pyramid in the middle of it and I, I like to start there because you know Africa is the beginning is a very simple 
thing that this society, um, American, Western, whatever you, you want to call it, um, if we just started out with that, with the babies that were all multiple migrations of people who have left Africa or stayed in Africa, just to give the scale of how long African people have been, you know, uh, making life ways, making solutions to crises, to problems, um, deep culture, and uh, that we are the beginning. You know, Africa is the beginning. So um, even though it's kind of boarded up right now, they have some kind of construction thing right in front of it. So I get really mad and I have to tell mm. people, look around the corner here. Mm. But um, we start off there and we're driving all the way downtown to uh, to where the Fan- Faneuil Hall is and, and the downtown area. But when I do the uptown ones, I'm really going to rely heavily on um, folks who... You know, they're like, what was the first black grocery store in Roxbury? Uh, is, know, it still, what, is it still there? <laughs> a lot of this stuff is is imagination. So while I'm driving, I've got maps and things to hand out over my shoulder. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were always pulling over and having a discussion. But with the elders, it was incredible. They're like, yeah, um, my uncle's the minister over there. Mm. You know, he knew Martin and, and this right, and that. Right. So it, it was it's a lot of um wonderful things. And I'm partnering with a lot of folks. There's a sister who's got a good um a good archive of Cambridge history. Mm. So I'm building a tour that's gonna go from Cambridge Port through Harvard out to Mount Auburn Cemetery and then back through Brattle. And then into Harvard Common and Christ Church in the graveyard there where there's a couple of um, uh, there were enslaved Africans who are actually on tombstones, which is really rare in New England history for black folks to be buried and recognized. Um, but I, w- I want to go back yeah. to something, though, and we t- touched on it briefly, but I think it's important <laughs> how so many um, buildings and so many uh, landmarks that are part of Black Boston and the history of Black mm-hmm. Boston are being torn down. I'm thinking about the Harry Tubman House. Yeah. Some places Lamentable, that, yeah. Right, yeah. and some places that um, the Freedom House, the old Freedom House, mm-hmm. it's going to be development. I'm thinking about, because I grew up in Boston. I mean, I've lived other places, but um, for the most part, I remember all of these places. I remember trolleys mm-hmm. on, you know, Warren Street, Blue Hill Avenue, and I mean, now there's one in Mattapan and people fought to keep that. And it might even be part of the oldest trolley system in the United States. But mm-hmm. what a lot of Boston is, you know, the first public school, um, the first police force, mm-hmm. which were originally slave catchers. Most people don't know mm-hmm. that. Um, and so I remember uh, a lot of buildings that I thought should have been designated as historic sites, landmarks that haven't been, that are being torn down for so-called affordable housing or just being torn down and they're a park. Um, what comes to mind is New York City and Seneca Village mm. in Central Park. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so how, you know, for those of us who are historians, and you're more of a historian than I am, but I've been a history fan forever. What does that do to the people's sense of belonging and sense of self when you can't find those places that you remember that you grew up with, never mind your ancestors or people that came before you, where you live or people that lived before you, because I think most people don't realize that um, Beacon Hill and Back Bay was black. And then, but people that, um, whose grandparents, whatever grew up in Boston, know how we've been pushed out of certain areas between Boston, um, Back Bay, and then the South End, and then Roxbury, and now out of Roxbury, 
up through Hyde Park and Mattapan and out of there to Brockton and all these other places. So what is, my original question is, what does it do to a people that don't know their history and can't see the landmarks? <laughs> Sharon, you get right to it. You ask the good questions. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things racing through my head right now. Um, one of the main things is um, a mentor of mine, um, Cheryl Jennifer LaRoche. Um, she is a, a kind of like a, a anthropologist. Um, and she she makes the, the, the note that she's talking about black movability and, and our history and, and so forth. And she says, you know, I can go to any city anywhere in the U.S. and, you know, if I determined from the geography and the anthropology, you know, if, if the, this section of town is up on a hill and it's good to be up on a hill because it's beneficial to the economic system or, you know, entry to the city or whatever, you know black folks are going to be in the valley. Mm-hmm. Or if it's beneficial to be in the valley, then the black folks are going to be up on the hill, mm-hmm. you know, or they're going to be on one side of the train tracks or the other side of the train tracks. And so the history of Boston is is exactly that and our movability and, and um, what it does to us and how, how history is remembered. Um, one of the things that, that first came to mind while you're asking your question is that the Shirley Eustis House, for example, they, they have a, um, a good nonprofit uh, group of folks who are running there, and they took me on a, a walk through the building and all of that. And in the colonial times, there were enslaved Africans who lived there and worked there and ran, you know, the, the estate. And there it was a private owner of a building that's down the street from it, um, off of Dudley Street, off of, in mm-hmm. the Nubian Square area. And they finally, I think they finally got this fella to sell the property, and now they're going to be able to excavate um, because they think that it really has been unchanged in the basement area and all of this. They're able to do like, um, what do you call archaeology mm-hmm. and really look for different things. Now, this is so exciting because what white folks did um, you know, unlike the Civil War, when it was just a big watershed event, you know, Appomattox and um, General Lee surrenders and the war is supposed to be over. And then you have the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments uh, to the Constitution that basically said, you're free, um, you are a citizen and you can vote. They didn't ask us. It was unilaterally just saying this is what you are. It's just a whole other thing. But when slavery ended in Massachusetts, it was not abolished. Uh, people get confused by that. They think it was just somebody said there will be no more slavery in Massachusetts, Vermont, and Connecticut, and all this. No, it was generally phased out. In some court cases, the the slave lawsuits um, allowed it to be kind of just disfavored and go away over time. Um, but when slavery was on its last legs in New England. Um, what white folks really wanted was for black folks to disappear. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the south, in the south. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Disappear like aliens came down and gave us. So yeah. we just we just all died. <laughs> it was like just just um give us um give us a society where we don't have to be reminded that we had people enslaved here. Wow. All right. So 
what happens to the little outhouse where the slaves were quartered? Um, and one thing, you're going to get me going all different directions here, but <laughs> our grammar and, and vocabulary is really insufficient to describe what, what our experience was going through and what our experience is going through now. And so do we call them quarters? Do we call them huts, cabins, um, homes? Where black folks resided, whether it was in the north or in the south, um, that, that has a lot to be discussed. But the, the little outhouses or the cabins or the attic spaces, um, you know, in urban northern enslavement, um, black folks were often, you know, the, a slave girl might be responsible for waking up and turning on the candles of the household and sleep at the foot of the enslaver's bed. So it was a very intimate situation compared to like a Georgia, um, you know, rice plantation or a Alabama cotton plantation where you have barracks or quarters and cabins that stretch for miles and miles. And there's a huge bell that just rings in the morning and you get whooped if you don't show up and whooped if you don't pick enough. And if you, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, when we go to the Revere house, um, before Paul Revere's father owned the house, there was a slaver, a merchant named Howard, who owned five slaves in that old Paul Revere house. Now, that's that to your to your original question. There are a lot of things that do remain intact. Mm -hmm. um, the only well, the only slave quarter in the northern United States is still intact in Medford, Massachusetts, at the Isaac Royal slave quarters. And um, I've been taking people there for years. They let people go on the grounds and I would do my own tours when they're closed or whatnot. But it's a very, um, they're very, since the 80s, they have been one of the leading nonprofit museum kind of places that has incorporated the black story, the, the enslavement um, story along with the mansion. Uh, uh, and so a lot of places don't bring that up front in the name in their programming and all of that. So it's good folks over there. And the last, since um, COVID, they hired a dynamic young sister. Um, I forget her name, but it, it, they, they're doing good things over there. It's really worth a visit. But they have a standing slave quarters that's beside the actual mansion. And so you can see where, you know, they'd have the kitchen set up and they didn't want to see their enslaved people when they serve. So they have like a hidden stairwell and, you know, where you bring the food through and, and all of this stuff. But if you go to like New York or Connecticut or Pennsylvania, look at these old merchant houses. Um, you know, these were the slaving generations that did have enslaved Africans, even though not in the numbers of the dormitories in the South or in the Sugar Islands or whatnot or Brazil. Um, but so the first thing they would try to remove from the archive is, you know, the little shed or the shack where the old Joe or Martha slept, you know, mm. and that is really affecting the record. And then, um, you know, you can go on an auction site. There's a lot of websites that do online auctions, you know, like not Sotheby's, but like, you know, just regular auctions. And there are people who have been handed down documents that were hidden right after slavery. So the archive, whether it's in all manifestations, all forms of it, was the whole idea was to remove it. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> I, I can't. I, I got to take a break. My, my spirit <laughs> my spirit has to take a break from this one. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Black Teachers Matter. 
here on WBCA LP 102.9 FM in Boston. We're Boston's community radio station. I'm here with this amazing young man. I'll call him young man because uh, I think he is as young in spirit. Joel McCall of Readrin. Is it Corporation Company? Uh, just, uh, I got an LLC, but it's just Readrin Business Group. Readrin Business Group. Um, if you want to get more information, www.reidrenreidrin.com backslash tours. Or if you want to contact Joel McCall, info at reidrin.com, R-E-I-D-R-E-N. We're going to take a short break now. And um, I have to tell you, thank you for hanging in there with us. We are not leaving. We're coming back with Joel McCall talking about the hidden history of Black Boston. I'm your host, Sharon Eaton Hinton, producer of Black Teachers Matter. You can listen to us here every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on WBCA LP 102.9 FM Boston, Boston's community radio station, the station that gives you the information so that you can actually make more decisions, better decisions about your life. We're not just talking about dead people, We're talking about live history. It is happening now. And we're happening now here live at 102.9 FM Boston. We'll be right back. What is dedication? My daughter started making necklaces. She makes what we call affirmation fashion. I tell her every day that your black is beautiful. Your black is beautiful. And if there's anything better than being beautiful, it's being smart. If there's anything better than being smart, it's being kind. And reaffirming that every day is our method of making sure her chin never drops. My dad wasn't around. And I remember riding a bike and falling off and cutting myself. And me never just wanting to get back on it. People ask, how your children learn how to ride a bike? And you didn't. I didn't teach them. I just created an environment where they taught themselves, and all I had to do was be there. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Psychologist, social worker, drug expert, sex counselor, substitute parent, and friend. Now, those are some of the things teachers have to be before they even get down to teaching. Now, the more you know what it takes to be a teacher these days, the more you realize that it's one of the toughest, most important jobs in the world. So what can you do to thank your teacher? It's simple. Learn. This newspaper's got good news and bad news. The good news is that it's loaded with jobs for accountants and lawyers and nurses and carpenters and every other kind of skilled worker. The bad news is that there isn't a single ad for a school dropout, at least nothing you'd want. The more you know how tough things are for school dropouts, the more you'll see you have no choice. You have to stay in school. Think about it. I can't believe that some of you guys still think it's cool to drink and drive. Well, read my lips. Anybody that's going to drive me home has got to be in condition to get me there in one piece. The more you know how I feel about drinking and driving, the more you know that if you drink and drive, I'm not going anywhere with you. 
But if you happen to be the designated driver, well, you can take me home anytime. I don't know. Help me out here. It's a punching bag, right? I mean, it doesn't talk, it doesn't laugh. It sure doesn't give you a hug when you need one. Yet some of you insist on mistaking your children for it. How's that possible? I mean, when you hit a punching bag, it doesn't cry. Back in the fifth grade, I had a favorite school pastime. Teacher torture. Poor Mrs. Sheldon Fry. I left fake vomit on her desk, set off stink bombs at lunch, painted the class hamster light blue. And the thing was, I liked Mrs. Sheldon Fry, and she liked me. And I learned a lot that year. So, to all the teachers who helped kids learn in spite of themselves, thanks. And to Mrs. Sheldon Fry, did you ever find those dead frog parts? Some guys will try to tell you that hanging out on the street and messing with guns gets you respect. Well, they're wrong. They're dead wrong. Because sooner or later, you're going to kill someone. And you're going to do time for it. Or someone's going to blow you away because they know you're on. Don't kid yourself, man. You know what happens to guys who carry guns. Wise up. It's your life we're talking about. Don't let a gun kill your future. And we're back here on Black Teachers Matter, WBCA LP 102.9 FM in Boston. For Boston's community radio station, I am your host and producer, Sharon Eaton Hinton, here with my guest, Joel McCall, talking about the hidden history of Black Boston. Thanks to him, it's not so hidden. I am very interactive with him, but honestly, I could sit here and talk to him for hours and hours and hours. I've actually been a wonderful recipient of um, and a participant in his African-American ancestry workshops at the Freedom House. In addition to a lot of the trainings, if you go on to, he's got a Facebook page and a website, he's always offering opportunities to expand your knowledge about yourself if you're a Black American or a black person or African-American in Boston. And I want to say, welcome back, Joel. How are you? <laughs> Good. We, we, we get to talk to, I get to talk to you, and I consider it an, an incredible honor. Um, I could pick your brain all the time. You would probably be annoyed of me, but I know you love to teach, and you're a great instructor, a great teacher. Use a lot of the visuals. My um, experience with you with the African ancestry, my aunt who only attended two of the workshops because she flaked out a little bit. I don't know if it was too much for her, but I was just talking to her today. She's 88 years old. Mm. And when we came to your workshop, we had um, she had three and a half notebooks. And even <laughs> with the three and a half notebooks, we still, um, on the Ancestry.com website, you showed us how to use the tools to go back into places I never even knew my grandparents lived mm. in Boston, in the South End. So that was awesome. <laughs> Um, it's mm. it's a little scary because you um, you hear that like I'm one of the oldest. My mother had 16 brothers and sisters. This is my mm. mother's side, mm. and all of my grandparents were Southerners: Mississippi, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina. Mm. And I just heard a story a couple of days ago. Um, out of the 17 kids, there are four that that are surviving. My aunt, one of my aunts, is 94. The other one is 90, mm. um, 88, and 86. Mm. 
And so I was talking with my 86 year old aunt and she or 86 young. Sorry, Aunt Marion, I called you old, but um, <laughs> 86 <laughs> years young. And she told me a story about um, going down south because it was just like a tradition. If you had, you know, relatives down south, sometimes in the summer you'd go down south. Mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're good or bad, you visited your relative down south. So she went down south. And my aunt, some of some people that are listening to me won't know what I'm talking about. I know Joel will know what I'm talking about. There was the paper bag um, test. If you were darker than a paper bag, there were certain places you just were not going to go. And so my my aunt is about the color of a paper bag, but my uh, grandmother is very, very light-skinned. My mother's mother is very, very light-skinned. Her husband, my grandfather, is like blue-black, what they call blue-black. And so my mother's mother's mother was more white and Native American than she was African American. And so... um, they used to call what well, a couple of my relatives called her the angry squaw, and I don't know why she was angry. But my aunt Marion went down south to be with her mother, and when they went to go to church, and it was a black church, um, she couldn't sit with her own mother because she was too dark to sit with her own mother. So there's some of the stories I know, right? Mm. I'm just looking at your face. You're like, what? Mm. And so, and also my um, great grandmother, my my mother's mother's mother. Um, I heard the stories that uh, if you were too dark-skinned, her daughter's children, she would put your picture in the drawer, and only the ones that were light-skinned she would put on top of the credenzas. So that's, you know, when you think about history, that's some of the stuff. I think people just need to talk to the elders in their family and get some of these stories and then compare it to the history because a lot of the history we will lose if we don't talk to the elders because the African proverbs say, you know, we lose a library when we lose an elder. Mm. You know, I've been blessed. Um, I had a rough 2023. But in November, I took on a contract with um, the Mildred um, Mildred Community Center over Mattapan, their senior program. And for two months, all the way through mid-December, I taught my elders genealogy. Mm-hmm. And... They took me everywhere. Every class I have with everybody is so fascinating to me that um, I can't believe you know I'm paid to to run some of these programs. But um, you know, we'll have somebody say, "I'm from Jamaica. I'm from you know," and then suddenly, you know, we're investigating some um, ship manifest or something, and we're going to the little crossroads off of Montego Bay, and we're getting familiar with maroons on the the western side of the you know. I just you know, I just research these people's stuff all night and flip them stuff on email and say, did you know your parents were over here? And this was this. Hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, I uh, we make incredible discoveries. There's also a lot of deep wounds. There's a lot of, um, I can see the six-year-old child in a lot of these 80, 90-year-old women. And it's like, you know, I didn't know my father's side so well. And um, you know, I heard he had another family and, and this and that. And there is a lot of um, things that we have to deal with as black people. But the way that I, I introduce the whole genealogy program, um, I call it Ancobia 6 because, as I was telling you earlier, I left um, after a decade of working in the corporate world. I basically... 
um, took a break for a couple months, and I went down to visit my great aunt in um, Prince George County, Maryland. That's where my father's people are from. Mm. And um, that's the McCall name, right? Yeah. So on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay, uh, Chesapeake um, uh, Bay, you've got Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman messing around in the 1820s and 1830s. Um, Frederick Douglass was actually lent out after he beat up his overseer and he was unwieldy to be spending time in in that part of um, uh, Maryland. He was actually sent to build slave ships in Annapolis. And he's, wait, wait, uh, wait, wait. Frederick Douglass built slave ships? As an enslaved African, yeah, in Maryland. I- how, how did I know that? I, I don't know. I know it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the other side, there's a we have a Patuxent up here too because um, what was the this, the native sister's name? Pocahontas, uh, but that's not a right name. But those people have the same Algonquian language as the native people up in the New England area. So they have a river called Patuxent up in up here in Rhode Island. But there was one off of the Chesapeake on the western shore where my peoples were. And the McCall name was from a Dr. McCall who owned eight enslaved Africans in Prince George County. And I was researching all of this in 2003. So the internet was around, but we weren't really, you know, doing all that research. But I made a, a actual physical trip, stayed with my great aunt Martha. She told me a bunch of old stories, showed me some old pictures. And I started going out to the Annapolis uh, Maryland National Archives, uh, State Archives in Annapolis. I went to Richmond, Virginia, went to Loudoun, Culpeper County, Virginia, went all the way to West Virginia to look for some folks when West Virginia used to be a province, uh, some counties of Virginia, and tracing my ancestry all over the place there. And um, so I came back from that trip with the idea that I wanted to make a genealogy program because it was just so amazing. And I call the program Encobia, which is a Twi word from the Akan people in, in West Africa. And it means those who lead the battle in commitment and courage. Wait, wait, right? say that again. Those who lead the battle in commitment and courage mm. is what is behind the word Encobia. And I made the program called Encobia 6, so it's just six steps. And the first step is why do we need to do this, All right? A lot of our grandparents, our elders, don't want to talk about the things that have, that have traumatized us and, and we've been through. But the way that I built the program, and I start off with why, then I move to autobiography, then your elders, then those ancestors in living memory and beyond living memory, and then your deep ancestry, which is Africa I belong. And the sixth step, the last step is um, we do a um, like a, a share and tell, a, a, a story at the end to you know talk about what you found out in the in the program or just something of interest that you want to share and you can bring your your spouse your children your grandchildren your friends your parents whatever and um, at one of the programs when at Freedom House I think maybe one of the ones after you or during yours there's a sister who brought a little box for the share the the descendant story day the the, the share and tell at the end bearing tradition forward and um, she said her father was, uh, her father, her grandfather was um, incarcerated with Malcolm X, and they built this little 
boxed together and everybody's jaws just fell on the floor. Wow. You know, it's, just, it's just, you know, whether you decide to make a family union and you become that, every family's got that one crazy aunt or uncle who just runs around saying, do you, who's your ancestor? Do you know the Uncle Joe's name or who he was married to and all this? They keep the records and all of that. And the people who show up at my genealogy classes are often trying to be that person or trying to learn more about that. But um, creating those family reunion situations where you can start to make trees and start to uncover these things is very powerful, but there's a lot of hesitancy in, in a lot of our people because of the trauma of our youth and, and our early days and, um, you know, slavery days and um, the sharecropping. And it's always a story that the universe gets smaller the further back in time you go, whether it's from Antigua whether it's from Louisiana or Galveston, Texas, whether it's from the Upper South, Virginia or PG County, Maryland, the story of us always being moved um, while we were in this, this, um, this system, this slaving system, uh, Babylon. Why did we end up in Boston? Why did we end up in Chicago, Detroit, New York, and all of this? It's always a story of a Southern movement um, um, going North. And, you know, people are still hesitant. They look me up and down at the beginning of class and they say, you're doing this like Skip Gates. And I'm like, no, we're going to look together for our own stuff. And it's not going to be a team of Harvard kids that just push something across the table that they think is interesting. We're going to look at what you find interesting the bitter and the sweet, because the the big piece of it is I I have I, when I do my mobile history museum, I've always carried around two dolls, and one is a white doll, one is a black doll, and they look exactly the same. Difference is the plastic of the skin of the doll, and I always use it as a teaching prop, as a tool to remind folks of Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the um. um 1954. Exactly. The, the Kenneth Clark and Mamie Clark, um, and I didn't know this at first, the, the, the husband and the wife were both doctors. They were both hands-on and involved in this. So Mamie had a big role in this. But these, these uh, black doctors were um, brought in to support the, de- the defense of the kids who were suing to get equal schooling in Brown versus Board of Education. It was a collection of um, fights. Um, to go off script again, that started when black men went into World War II and saw how the world was and it came back and they necessitated the civil rights movement. Then teachers started to sue for equal pay um, in our tax money, how it's being spent, issues we're still dealing with today. Um, but that that's how the, the collection of the Brown cases uh, versus the Board of Topeka, Kansas uh, education um, started, but anyways, they were trying to show the mental effects of these horrible conditions that black kids were being put in into schools, and specifically in the South. And um, they used the doll test. And so, um, what I do is I show a video and I use these dolls, um, you know, in role playing. And there's a sister who I think it was in you know 2007 or eight. She recreated the doll test with kids. And she duplicated it to see if it was different. Yeah. And so what she would do is she'd have two dolls sitting in front on a table like this. And the child, you know, five, six, seven-year-old boys and girls, um, beautiful black kids, she'd she'd sit there and she'd say, "Um, 
which doll is the good doll? And they push, they tap on the white doll. And which doll is the bad doll? And they tap on the brown, black skin doll. And then she'd say, um, and why is that the good doll? Because it's white. And why is that the bad doll? Because it's black. Which doll is more like you? And time after time, every kid tested would um, push the black doll forward. And there's one in the video this girl did. Um, there's this one little sister, young girl. You can see while she's making the decision, which doll is more like you? She's just identified that the white doll is good and the black doll is bad. So she hesitates and you can see a violence coming into her core. And after time, I started to realize this and I started to show this in prison, um, you know, grade schools, you know, um, community centers, colleges, all types of different places. And everyone I show the video to and show the doll test to, there's a visceral reaction when they see, and I slow it down and, and pause it when this girl is doing it because she's going towards the white doll. Which doll is more like you? She wants to say good because she's a child of God. She's got an indwelling spirit of creator and she knows who she is. But she has just been instructed by this Babylon system through her parents or through TV, through whatever. She hasn't even been out in the world to know enough of anything. She's taken on a major defect, the biggest flaw that there is in all of humanity. She's taken on mm -hmm. inside of her, and she moves her eye, and then she moves to the black doll and pushes it forward in resignation. Right. So what she's done is she's taken on this incredible weight and violence, and that is why... You know, when you see these cop cases and, and um, shootings or um, even the threats of shootings and are over-policing, um, how, how mostly white teachers are dealing with our black and brown kids in school as authority mm -hmm. uh, figures, which is why black teachers' lives matter so much. And the, these bring up visceral old traumas in us that are older than our bodies are because of the, the oceans of violence that, that we've had to be put through. And then, you know, a tiny little thing like um, that Republican woman who's running with Trump, she, she was asked about the Civil War out of the Nikki blue. Nikki Haley. Yeah, she said, she said something like she, she couldn't bring it to bear out of her mouth that slavery was the reason for the Civil War. And so that just excites that 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 hurt and that trauma within us again um, because no one's ever dealt with it. But then there's also, uh -huh. I mean, <laughs> again, you and I can talk a dog of a meat wagon, so <laughs> we've got like, you know, maybe 15 minutes left, but yeah. um, and we talked about this in the very beginning, when you don't have uh, any representations of yourself, but then also, like you just talked about, any positive representations of yourself or your children or your people. Um, I remember years ago when my daughter and I were at the uh, West Indian Carnival in Grove Hall and people are from different countries that are black, people of color, waving these different flags. 
And my daughter's like, mommy, mommy, which one is ours? Mm-hmm. And because we're African-American, we're, we're black Americans, and it's we layered. have a conflicted past with <laughs> the layered. red, white, and blue thing. <laughs> so it's just like, ah. Uh. And, and also, you know, my, my parents, um, my father was a black nationalist, and my great-grandfather was a Garveyite. So mm-hmm. I have, like, roots in black is beautiful, black is powerful. That, that black creativity and imagination that is everything. And it, I don't mean to cut you short. No, I just no, need no. to say this. This is important. That Trinidadian flag, that Barbadian flag, that Ghanaian flag, these are all nation states and creations that are about power over. They're not in the spirit within which ancient African tradition and our African know-how and solvability and, and problem-solving and problem-making, um, it's all foreign. Um, the, the 54 so-called nations in Africa, um, the Caribbean nations and all of that, that they're hollering, that they got their own um, flag, their own currency and all of that. Those are those are gifts. <laughs> those are not actual authentic representations of where we could be if we were to be as free as the world doesn't want us to let it make it. Um, but the, so... The, the, but I'm, by the way, belated um, <laughs> Independence Day to our... Brothers and sisters from Haiti. Yes, yesterday. My grandmother and I used to always celebrate January 1st by saying Happy Freedom Day. But I was just thinking Mm -hmm. that um, when we're talking about reclaiming our history and, and, you know, this power structure, whether it's Republican Mm -hmm. or Democrat, Mm -hmm. or the book publishers wanting to ban books, um, say that slavery didn't exist. It was involuntary servitude. Mm -hmm. I mean... So the whole the whole thing about it, I mean, even to when you're talking about the media, you do not see on most major channels happy, productive um, black families with black male and female with children in the media portrayed. Hmm. Hmm. What does that do and how do we fight it? So, you know, we've been doing it for a long time and, you know, you take. You take, there's something in Boston called the uh, Broadside, which was kind of just a big handbill paper advertisement that they'd slap on the side of a wall to do advertising in the 1800s. And after um, slavery was outlawed and then the slave trade was outlawed in, in the United States and England and all of that, black folks would go down to the common and celebrate. We'd have um, these different type of celebrations. And, you know, they would put these broadsides up that said, that made fun of how we talk. So they say, Bobolition Day. Mm. And they'd have a picture of people in like um, these Napoleonic kind of suits, black kind of racist caricatures. And they'd have them marching around and silly stuff with flies all around them and stuff like this. And they were mocking our attempts to celebrate our humanity, mm-hmm. which is a lesson for all of humanity, right? And those Bobolition ads turned into Jump Jim Crow mocking, you know, and the blackface and all mm-hmm. of that. Out in Jamaica Plain, they had a lot of minstrel shows on that center street and all of that. And they, again, they're white people dressing up as black people trying to act white, mocking us. And, right? and getting paid for it. Oh, yeah. And then that turned into Hollywood. 
with the birth of a nation and all of this. Do you know every single step along the way black people was keeping tab of our humanity, of all humanity, protesting? Um, Geraldine and William Monroe Trotter protesting at the Capitol building at Birth of a Nation on the Boston Common at the movie theater. The first black uh, blockbuster um, was about the the rise of the Klan and the celebration of the Ku Klux Klan. And every step along the way, you ask, what does that do to us? It does all types of things. Um, But, you know, whether... It, you know, it comes back to that taking on that, that, right, that that child did. Because with that in her mind, believing there's a great human defect and flaw in her, she's more likely to harm herself mm. because she doesn't value herself. But also, and, and, most when you talk uh, about the murder and stuff, and one of the PSAs we had was talking about that. Yeah. I'm old enough to remember um, rap. Right. When rap mm-hmm, first came mm-hmm. out, and how it, it was about, yeah. you know, liberation yeah. and about uh, history and about really fighting back the system. I'm yeah. not going to use some of the words, but um, and then it all of a sudden became hip hop and and people sold out, you know, the Ebony's and the mm. because black people weren't necessarily supporting at the levels that were competitive mm. um, because we don't have these disposable income. There's all sorts of, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why that wasn't happening. But. At some point, you become a participant to your own oppression. So let's talk reason, about that. The reasons were several, most of them federal. <laughs> right, <laughs> but, um, right. What's his right. name? Uh, Chuck D. But um, no, so that came about, and that's a natural, predictable progression. You move from the suicide, suicidal, to the homicidal, to the genocidal. So if you've got that idea, and that's what you're fed constantly, every day. Um, it's like you're living in a slave cabin looking at the big house every day when you wake up and what the structure is reminding you about. So you're more likely to harm yourself. Then you see others who look like you, the not good doll, taking on the flaw, the defect, that's the homicide comes in. And then if you get to some level of power, like Obama, you engage in genocide with drones on black and brown people all across the planet. Hold up, hold up. Let's let's back up for that one. (laughs) While Obama was in office, um, 10,000, over 10,000 black teachers were being pushed out of public schools with Rahm Emanuel, another black man, a man of color, in position. (laughs) And then um, underneath that hawkish uh, Hillary Clinton, (laughs) Obama killed a head, an African, two African heads of state. And one of them was trying to do the same thing that the European countries did, um, have a currency that was in Africa backed up mm, by the mm. the actual resources of Africa. It, and mm. they made a story up about why they did that. We got like three minutes left. Uh, Go for it. Well, no, the, the, the something you all, everybody should pay close attention to is the young generation in Africa. Africa is a young continent, actually, compared to the rest of the world. They're not aging as fast. They have a bigger birth rate and all of this. But there are some young generals in Mali, Burkina Faso, Equatorial Guinea, and they're making their own prices for the market. So they say, France, get out of here. France is no longer the uh, official language of our country anymore. We, we don't really know a lot. We're young people. We're a young generation. But we do know that if we're selling you this uranium out of our land for two cents and you're selling it for $135 for a pound, 
that's not no good anymore. And so there is a new movement in Africa. Now we'll see how they do and what kind of new things they put in front of them. But you can see that we don't stop. And whether the world wants to be as free as it as it can be or not, um, black people people are going to black folks are going to lead the way to it. Tell us again um, how we can get involved with the tours. We've got like two minutes left. The tours, if people want to get involved with your website, your sure. Facebook page, sure. support you, give you money. We can't talk about, they, they can, we can't tell people that they should, um, but if they're more interested in supporting what you're doing, how do they get in contact with you? So, um, I get things. I am very accessible. Um, Reidrin.com, that's R E I. D-R-E-N.com. Idrin in the Jamaican Patois means uh, us, I and I, we, brother, brethren, sistren, Idrin. So I just put the prefix re in front of it. So you can reach me at joel at reidrin or www.reidrin.com. Um, info at reidrin. And, uh, you know, I have um, my contact information is all over the website. And, uh, the tours, um, any programming you want, the genealogy program, you got a, a young group, an old group, all ages. Um, I'm based right here in Roxbury and Nubian Square area, so um, very accessible and glad to help out any folks who are black-minded um, and about that stuff. So, But you don't have to be black-minded to do this. You could be anyone, correct? Yeah, well, it, this is for our community. And um, I've never built any content for, you know, white, white folks. Now, for example, as a principal years ago, um, for a good 10, 15 years, I would never do programming during Black History Month for nonprofits because they would hoard their money and then spend it all in February. So just as a principal, I said, nope, you're going to have to spend money on my quality of, of education or anything I got to offer, not in February. And then I just, you know, somebody was really persistent, this posh um, nonprofit downtown. And, um, you know, so they, I threw out a ridiculous fee to them, you know, thousands of dollars for a, a brown bag lunch presentation. And they took it. And they took it in March 2nd or March 3rd. I said, I'm not doing it in February and it's this amount. And the funny thing is, is I gave a talk about the 400 year experience of black folks in Boston at the end this shaky, trembling Asian kid came up, a young man at this place, and he said, I didn't know about that. We got to go. Yeah. We got to go. I want to thank you, Joel McCall, Reidrin, <laughs> and www.reidrin.com backslash tours. I'm Sharon Hinton. This is Black Teachers Matter. Take care of yourself and each other. God bless. <laughs>